Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dixie Cochran, here with Eddie Webb. Hello. And Matthew Dawkins. Whoa, whoa, and thrice whoa. <laughs> thrice whoa? Is that, is that our theme for today? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I, that was spontaneous. I, I wasn't sure what to say. I usually try and say hello in a vaguely not my voice. And it just came out as whoa, whoa, and thrice whoa. Like you do. Not anything like your name. Uh, maybe, maybe I was channeling a spirit. Ooh. I just figured you're a real life Charles Dickens character. Yeah, yeah, I could be heralding the <laughs> uh, the the death of winter. Sorry, Dixie. Aww, <laughs> it's awkward. It was it was kind of you know ghosts of Christmas pasty. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was going with. Hmm. So well, they came from behind Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a, I just picture Charles Dickens and just like a tiny boy just like sticking his head out and being like, "Hello, <laughs> wow, wow, and thrice wow, Mister Dickens, sir." <laughs> Either that or like, uh, um, like from Star Wars, like they stand in single file, so you can't see their ranks. <laughs> Yeah, well, because like if it'll if it'll fit behind Charles Dickens, it's not that big. Like, right. Just a just a small person. Uh, I, am, I imagine Charles Dickens had a voluminous cape. There you I mean, go. I think I had a coat more than a cow. No, maybe maybe he had a cape. I'm I imagine sure. he he ran through London with the cape billowing behind him, going ha 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 peasants. <laughs> going going ha 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 every time I write a word I'm essentially printing money <laughs> to be fair that is true to be fair to be fair to be fair to be fair I don't know we're just doing the thing now anyway uh, back on track so today is I was going to say a very special episode but that makes it sound like we're going to talk to you about drugs um, <laughs> we can <laughs> they came from the needle <laughs> They came anyway. from the drunk tank. So, uh, today's uh, an interesting episode because Matthew is not only one of the hosts, he is the uh, interviewee of this episode <gasps> on some level. He's a guest. He's never He's been on the show before. I will put Welcome, on my Matthew. guest face. <laughs> Which nobody can see. <laughs> but it will come through in my voice. Hang on. Hello. Oh god, no! It sounds like I'm no, doing a children's no, TV no. show. Hello, kids, uh, and yet, and yet, strangely predatory. Uh, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like if you hosted a kids show, it would just be "Don't hug me, I'm scared." Yeah. Hello, kids. Do you want to see some game books? Um, let, let, let's rewind. Um, it's it's my it's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> Excellent. I, I don't know how to deal with this new formal Matthew, but here we are. Uh, so today we're doing a the the deepest of deep dives, really. We're doing a, yeah. a, a dive, truly, into They Came From Beneath the Sea, which I keep Ooh. always calling They Came From Beyond the Sea, because we announced They Came From Beyond the Grave, and now right. my brain is just wrong. Somewhere beyond exactly. the sea. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm sitting here in Delaware going, They Came From Beyond the Sea. So what, Europe? <laughs> oh no, the Europeans are here. <laughs> the worst of outcomes. Uh, so yeah, so the game beneath the sea is uh, Matthew's property that he has worked on. Uh, we talked about it a little bit on here before. It is a bit of a meta role playing game in mm -hmm. that you both play the characters who are dealing with horrible fish creatures and crab monsters and uh, communist kelp. I think I heard from your game at Midwinter. Yeah. Um, but also, you as the player have some knowledge that the characters are not actually dealing with this. They are actors in a movie. And so you can do things like insert a deleted scene or uh, bring in a stunt double to take the hit instead of you so that you don't die, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is just incredibly clever. Um, uh, when it was kickstarting, I know I talked a little bit about it in the vein of like MST3K kind of B-movies, uh, yes. where the... Even if the characters are in horrible, horrible peril, being, you know, threatened by King Clam, who is trying to murder them all and, you know, take take over the uh, city, um, you as the players are generally laughing about this and making quips and comments and uh, just lots of lots of ridiculous commentary on whatever is happening. 
Um, I know that Eddie and I are both pretty big fans of MSU3K. So that's Absolutely. that's that's an aspect of it that I just keep going back to that I think is awesome. Yeah, that's one thing I think it's really fun about that came from me to see is the fact is that it has that you say it's meta, but also if you add the MSU element to it, it's also you're also playing the audience as well as the actors and the characters. Oh my god, it's thrice meta. It's thrice well meta. Meta, yes. meta, and thrice meta. <laughs> oh, I'll walk off again and wait for my cue. <laughs> How do you keep getting in here? Have I had the doors locked? Um, uh, but they no, came yeah, from it, beyond the closed door. I came in through the bathroom window. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they so, came from behind the Beatles. Matthew, that's called go. home invasion. <laughs> that, 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 that's not okay. That's, that's not okay at all. Unless you're Santa Claus, it's still not entirely okay. It's still a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. It depends weird. on the family, I think. That's 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 fair. But yes, there um, is definitely an MST3K vibe to they right. came from. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was intentional. I know it's something myself and Rich discussed way back when we talked about uh, doing they came from beneath the sea via Onyx Path, and MST3K used to be on the Sci-Fi Channel over in the UK. I'm sure it was in America as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, only very very few houses had Sci-Fi over here, and it was on at some ridiculous time in the evenings, and no one ever saw it, which was a shame, because what I have seen, I've of course seen the most popular ones, like Manos and the like. Uh, mm-hmm. That... that um, I guess glib view of poor sci-fi and horror is very much present in They Came From Beneath the Sea and the sort of peanut gallery commentating on the uh, various failings of the performers and the the sets and the characters around them uh, is is certainly present. Well, yeah, because they they Came From Beneath the Sea is a game where on some level you are playing the, you know, grizzled World War II veteran. It it, it takes place in the 50s, by the way, because B-movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are on, on, on some level playing the grizzled World War II veteran who is actually, like, dealing with this peril. Mm-hmm. Um, but on some level, there's a cardboard building that could fall on it and kill it for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a little hard to explain to people, but I find that once they start playing it or once they kind of, like, get their heads wrapped around that part of the premise they are all in usually well that i think is why the the ms3 mst3k connection is actually strong is because a lot of times the the gags at least particularly the classic series um uh, uh is a lot of them pretending to be the characters but still referring to the elements of the movie yes um and so it helps kind of bridge that gap and so like you know it would be the kind of thing of like you know um uh, uh, stand perfectly still, and that you know, wired wired puppet can't possibly touch you, kind of thing. Um, and so, even though, like I said, the, on the surface, sounds like there's three layers here, but what's really happening is, like you say, is that you're trying to simultaneously be in the minds of his characters in a genuinely scary situation, but also going, okay, but if we just didn't have this reel of the movie anymore. And suddenly we just jump to the next scene. That's a perfectly viable way to solve this problem. Yeah. Which, which really, I feel like most role playing game players have done that without even realizing it. Because how many times have your characters been in like actual peril in a D and D game or a vampire game, but the table is cracking up about something? Yeah, right. absolutely. And uh, if anything, I think the the cut to black, not so much a fade to black, is um, is more elegant than the Deus Ex Machina of Tempus reaches down and smashes the beholder with his hammer and says, "You are free now, my adventuring party," uh, because uh, that that does feel like the power is taken out of the players' hands. Whereas if the players know that the odds are completely stacked against them and can afford a cinematic that's what the mechanics are called in this game, uh, these meta powers to insert a missing scene. Yeah, the monster may be about to devour them. King Clam, as mentioned earlier. And they know they've got no hope. They insert a missing scene. They appear somewhere else, somewhere completely different. They aren't allowed to directly reference what happened in the missing scene. They can make various uh, vague references to it. Uh, the one I always yeah, stuff use like, is, "Phew, get out of that!" You know. Yeah, I've never seen someone do that with a coconut before. Ha <laughs> 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 One of them slaps their thigh, but you can never actually say how you defeated or escaped King Clam, and that adds to the humor around the table. I think that's that's one of those. It's a challenge. 
in in some games, but in Beneath the Sea, it seems to come naturally that the the humour and the farce of it just seems to keep building and building, which is uh, always pleasant. Okay, so now that we're going to talk about the tone uh, before we get too far into mechanics, why don't mm. you tell us a little bit about just where this whole idea came from? Like, why B-movies? Why the 50s? Why ocean creatures specifically? Like, there's there's a lot of things at work here that I'm not sure I would have thought of, of, of you thinking of naturally. Like, it just doesn't seem like your brand of... Uh, I don't know, just the things things you're interested in, because usually, you know, we think of you and we think of, like, vampires and something the other, and I don't know, uh, it's just kind of like an, an, an out there genre for you to have chosen. Oh, I think that's fair. I, I oh, oh, way back when, when I was a young man, going, and now we fade to black and white and I go back to Dickensian, uh, London. <laughs> is that is that uh, when you were a young man? Are you wearing yes. like knickerbockers on a little cap? Like yeah. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, sir. I was saying to Rich Thomas as he was passing by. Could you take a look at my game concept? Go away, child. He said, batting me on the <laughs> end of the nose. Can't you see that I am publishing the first edition of Vampire the Masquerade? <laughs> is Rich? That's exactly what it sounds like too. Yeah, uh, uh, in the 19th century, all Americans spoke with an English accent. We know this. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have seen movies, yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, about 10 years ago, uh, it was about 10 years ago, oddly, uh, was the... Actually, yeah, I don't think I have ever told the full story before of how, about how this game came together. Well, this Ooh, is exclusive. the right format. Yeah. Okay. So around ten years ago, I ran a game called All Flesh Must Be Dark Place. So that makes oh, no sense okay. unless you are familiar with All Flesh Must Be Eaten by Eden Studios, right? And mm -hmm. a uh, Channel Four BBC, uh, Channel Four British comedy series called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yes. Uh, which was a spoof on sort of 70s and 80s action, horror, soaps and serials. Uh, now, um, uh, it was a Halloween game. At my role-playing club, we would do Halloween specials, so we would all just run one-shot horror games. And I decided to do All Flesh Must Be Eaten, which is a zombie role-playing game, where the heroes were the characters from uh, from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, who are all doctors and nurses, basically. Such as Dr. Rick Daglas, MD, Lucian Sanchez, Liz Asher, and so on. Now, mm -hmm. the characters from D Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, this TV series, all have notable quips. Very silly one-liners they put in because the dialogue is supposed to be hammy and dreadful, such as Lucian Sanchez saying, "I've seen some buns I fancy," and <laughs> oh no, and, and, and Rick Douglas, whenever he leaves a room with a kid in, he says, "Don't do drugs," and just walks off. <laughs> now. The character sheets that I wrote up for All Flesh Must Be Dark Place had these quips on them, about five of them per character. And the general conceit was, if you use the quip in the course of the game, you get additional dice or you recover all health or something like that. Right. So that was the sort of genesis point of using quotes as a mechanic. Now, so we fast forward a few years later, and I'm doing uh, a, a Let's Play on my YouTube channel of XCOM Terror from the Deep. So mm. XCOM is a uh, sort of isometric uh, sort of combat strategy game and uh, has been updated well since then. And uh, XCOM Terror from the Deep was a mid-90s uh, game where aliens invade from the bottom of the sea. Uh, they are the relati relatives of the aliens from UFO Enemy Unknown, which is its predecessor. Mm. Right. It's a very difficult game, not at all amusing. But what I was able to do when I did my Let's Play was name the characters. I could name the Aquanauts in this game. Mm. And so we had Flash Gordon, and we had Ming the Merciless, and we had the names of subscribers to my YouTube channel, and that compelled them to watch because they wanted to know what happens to their characters. Yeah. And... And this built up a weird following for my Let's Play of XCOM Terror from the Deep and made me start thinking, hmm, I wonder why there isn't a role-playing game where you where there's lots of maritime action or specifically underwater action. Uh, what, you know, what, why has that never been explored? So I started designing a role-playing game that went through a number of iterations in terms of system. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, where you were playing uh, members of private military companies, PMCs, in a sort of dystopian world where aliens were invading <laughs> from in a world. The, yeah, in a world where the seas cannot be trusted. Uh, and, yeah, aliens were invading, and governments were shattered. Some had fallen in league with the aliens. Others had tried to unite in defense. And the only people that could stop them were these mercenary bastards who were your protagonists. And, again, it was a game with zero humor. It was a mission-based role-playing game. And I think I may have even used the system from Phoenix Dawn Command or the Aliens RPG. Oh, so wow. it, it was very crunchy. It was all about wow. it was all about guns, ammo, strategy, placement, and things like that. It wasn't fun, <laughs> um, right? But somewhere, somewhere after that came this confluence of that idea and the quips from my All Flesh Must Be Dark Place game from a few years prior. As a point of reference, some art was actually created for that initial They Came From Beneath the Sea, which I'll have to post at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just bought it ad hoc to see whether I could visualize it. And it was all very horror-oriented horror stuff. And uh, so then I started yeah, turning it into this comedy game, and I spoke to Rich about it uh, at a Gen Con. And he liked the idea, and he said, well, let's draft up a formal proposal next time we meet, we'll actually go all the way through it. And so it was only at the Grand Masquerade in New Orleans where we got a chance to sit down, I bought him dinner, we went over the pitch, my proposal for how a contract for a game like that would work. I would sell the rights entirely to Onyx Path, which is what I've done. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, we hammered all of that out, shook hands on it, and then we went ahead and started uh, creating the role-playing game that we now know and love. So that is the genesis of They Came From Beneath the Sea. That's actually uh, interesting, because we, you're right, we never talked about that. Um, I actually always thought you got the quip mechanic from someplace else. Um, I think it kind of just shows you know, the, the, the depth and breadth of, of the RPG society. Um, I don't know if either of you have played or remember the Men in Black role-playing game from West End Games. No. no. Okay. Yes, obscure RPG knowledge. Um, uh, it, this was came this came <laughs> after the success of their Ghostbusters game. Um, it's like, oh, hey, you know, comedic action games with attached licenses work really well for us. Let's see if we can get more of those. Um, so they acquired the Men in Black game. It's, it, it it's, it's basically a lot of the original Ghostbusters uh, uh, engine underneath of it, as it were. You use D6s and, you know, you have certain characters and archetypes and blah, blah. But one of the things they have was catchphrases. And if you said your catchphrase, you actually put, had it on a card and you played it in front of you. And if you got your catchphrase in a certain situation, you got two D6 to your role. That was related to the catchphrase. Ah. Well, see, so my, my first... Ther- uh, no, my, my quips were definitely, and yeah, it just goes to show there's no such thing as an original idea, but uh, the, yeah, mine definitely came from Garth Marenghi and hmm. the comedy aspects turning they came from from a squad-based military game to a more comedic game was directly influenced by uh, Larry Blameyer's films, uh, mm-hmm. which I had seen in the interim years. that. I actually ran playtests of the hard, serious, miserable they came from beneath the sea at UK Games Expo and other conventions. Uh, mm-hmm. So, And what I was finding whenever I was playing it was no one was actually playing this game seriously. People were treating right. it like a B-movie game because there were lots of aliens and uh, aliens with different personalities. Or seeing giant blobfish floating above the surface wasn't as terrifying as I wanted it to be. So uh, I then was watching movies like Trail of the Screaming Forehead and um, Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. Where did you hear about those? Because I hadn't heard about Larry Blumer until you introduced me. Uh, I first saw them on the Horror Channel in the UK. Back when I lived with my parents. It wasn't even when I lived with my parents. Sometimes I'd just go and visit my parents. And... um, my mum and I have always shared a taste in terrible movies, and usually those movies could be found on the Horror Channel, hosted by Emily Booth. 
and mm. so we would um late at night like 10 p.m or so if i decided to stay the night we'd just see whatever's on and one night it was uh, one of larry's movies i think the first one we saw was trail of the screaming forehead and then i just explored his catalog uh so yeah that influenced the comedy so that by the time i came to pitch it to rich it was definitely more of a comedy game yeah, that's funny because I had seen uh, Skeleton of Cadaver before. So when you mentioned Larry, I was like, oh my God, I know that guy. Um, uh, because it was one of those things that, you know, similar situation. Uh, uh, my friend group in Cincinnati, we all just love bad movies. So someone brought uh, Skeleton of Cadaver over um, and we watched it. And it was like, oh, this is a bad movie, but it's, it's, it's supposed to be. That's that's interesting. Yeah, that is that is The Lost Skeleton of, Cadav- of Cadaver. Lost, yes. Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, yeah. And all I really remember from that film now, I should watch it again, honestly, but I remember there was a character who was turned into a cat. And, and, and the actress, all she keeps saying is Rower. Yes. Like, exactly like that. She doesn't, even, uh, she doesn't go uh, meow, just Rower. <laughs> her name is Anna Marla. Yes, thank you. Of course mm. it is. And that just, that, that just became a, an inside joke for, for a long time with that group. It was just like someone say something, he's looking at him, he's going Rower. You know, so, so, so Larry's interesting in that he's also kind of a meta filmmaker. Like he, he knows he's not making right. quality content. He's making, yeah. like, he's making content that is b-movie on purpose yeah and that's a very fine balance i mean it's the same thing in the role-playing game but it's it must be so hard to make a movie that is deliberately bad without being terrible uh because it's it's funny for all the right reasons and Mm -hmm. and dramatic for all the right reasons but at the same time it has that meta framework where as viewers we know that it's deliberately made this way and, and sometimes that can really fall flat, like, uh, I don't know, picking on a movie. Um, some of the latter scary movie movies, um, yeah. I yeah. always f- I found, okay, this is really going downhill now. You're really just sort of slapping us in the face with the humor. I also never and... thought any of them were all that good, because, like, let's be real. If you want, you can watch Scream and make fun of it. Like you can riff track right. Scream, <laughs> yeah, and and Scream is an, is actually a meta horror movie that yeah. does incredibly well because yeah. the characters are aware of Wes Craven and John Carpenter and so on. Uh, like so one of them literally anything, explains how horror movies work, like halfway through, and then they all die in that manner. Like that's that's the yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Matthew Lillard is excellent in that movie, uh, but yeah, I um, I can definitely see a connection there. Uh, but yeah, getting Larry on board to write on the book was a big coup. Uh, I didn't anticipate that he would at all be interested, and he just kind of fell in love with the project. Yeah, uh, so, contributing all of the fiction. I was going to say, so well, that's, per- that's perfect. So let's talk about the fiction a little bit first before we get too hardcore into uh, what what you can play as and mechanics and that. So, uh, so Larry, uh, I, I tasked Larry with writing, I think, somewhere like 12 or 13 short fiction pieces, about 1,000, 1,500 words each, to go between chapters or preface chapters. And actually, while all of those fiction pieces were fantastic and they did deal with uh, things like the Creeping Coral and King Clam and I Was a Teenage Shrimp, uh, and such other fantastic titles that could be movies. That, that was yeah. the general direction. These could all be B-movies, but you need mm. to tell the story of them within a very small, a very condensed word count. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give people ideas of what they could run, really. Uh, right. The they, they were all fantastically written. Larry really earned his money, but they were all missing something, which is what you added, Dixie, uh, in in editing. And What did I add? It was... So you pointed out quite rightly that when read at face value, you couldn't really tell that they were being deliberately bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it would be like turning on Trail of the Screaming Forehead on the off chance watching five minutes of it and turning it off again you know you wouldn't get you wouldn't know instinctively okay this is a parody this is you'd think god this is awful (laughs) and so uh you you advise that we add some sort of out of character notes like uh, this is uh a would-be movie writer sending his script or his proposal off to a director right right. Yeah, yeah 
and all the notes are very funny it, too. All the notes that that that, that you added are great. <laughs> well, yeah, we just doing? have the yeah we have the writer increasingly turning into a crab or something yeah. like that by the end of it. So yeah. it's just. <laughs> It's just becoming more and more manic. Why did this one smell of fish? Everything um, is so meta in this game because, like, even in the fiction, you have yeah. the fiction itself, which is telling these stories, which are stories you can run in the game. So, like, you can literally right. play, like, you can fight the teenage shrimp, um, who I thought was very funny. Um, and then, but, like, also there's this writer who's turning into some kind of crab person and this director yelling at him for turning into a crap it's like what's what's happening there's too much happening but it's, it all works it all gloriously works yeah uh well i think it does i think the it really just her heart lands it surfaces um and that's uh, no small credit to you dixie uh, that's good direction and it, again something something that has to be really carefully balanced in a game like this because as everyone kept telling me when this book was being written let alone this close to release it's a comedy is a really hard genre Mm-hmm. to get right especially in a, in role playing games because no one likes to be told what's funny yeah. and therefore being able to get it right and i think for the most part uh, i can't think of any standout parts where it doesn't i think for the most part this book does get it right i've not spoken to anyone yet uh, although i'm tempting fate now who's looked at it and said <laughs> This is the least funny role-playing game I've ever read. GURPS was more amusing than this. Um, but there, there will be someone, because humour is subjective, but uh, I think this uh, the book does toe a fine line, and I think it does it well. And that's not just on me, that's on all of the staff that were involved. Well, yeah, the other thing that I like about it is that it is set in the 50s, um, which you know is a very different time socially. Uh, but you, you you did a good job at making it clear that if a character is being sexist, that's ridiculous. So you know, whenever there's a there's a lady scientist and the other you know like war veteran, it's like, oh, a lady scientist. I didn't know that, but like clearly he's in the wrong, you know. And right. that's that's just how B movies yeah. were. There was always a lady scientist or a lady doctor or a lady something else, and yeah, <laughs> it's it's very silly. And a surprising number of B movies get that right uh they do have uh women at near the start of the movie or at least on first glance being objectified by the strong-jawed hero and sometimes they just don't deliver and you know that stays that way throughout but other times the the lady scientist proves uh, not you could argue not that she has to um proves that the strong-jawed moron was being a moron all along and that it's mm-hmm. down to her inte- intellect that the day is saved yeah um and it's i don't know that i'd go so far as to call it empowering because it's still presented in a pretty misogynistic context but I think we've probably done a better job in They Came From Beneath the Sea than most of the movies of the 1950s did. Uh, and the same for uh, cultural and ethnic diversity yeah. uh, through art in particular. It was very important to me, and I know the rest of the team, that we put forward a lot of uh, positive representation. Yeah. Uh, because, you know what, they're... they're there were a hell of a lot of uh, people of color in America where this game is primarily set in the 1950s. And mm-hmm. there is absolutely no reason they wouldn't have vital roles in a plot like this. Uh, I know a lot of people point at uh, Night of the Living Dead, sadly, as the first movie of this kind in a way that has a, a man of color in the lead role. And that's 1968, I think, uh, which is you know deeply unfortunate. But I don't see why you'd need to cleave to that for this game right exactly and it's something that's absolutely something that i've always found interesting this is a bit of a digression from they came from specifically but um i've been noticing the past few years that a lot of the the so-called trash or disposable media of the 20th century was where a lot of this stuff was being explored more um, like the the pulps of the twenties and thirties, both the crime pulps and the the heroic pulps, um, the the B movies. Uh, it was the well, you know, we don't. No one's going to watch this anyway. We're making this because we're trying to hit word count, or trying to fill pages of a magazine, or trying to 
filled the other seats because the B movies were really the second movie you showed at the theater. Um, and so usually they were cheap and disposable. And so a lot of times it's the, well, who's, no one's going to watch this, so let's try something new. Um, and obviously by our standards, they're not great, but they are more progressive than the default high-level media of their time. And it was interesting to see they came from taking the inspiration and kind of pushing it even further to say, hey, you know, this stuff's already there. We're just kind of showing it more and pulling it out more. Yeah. Yeah, well, they, they were the movies where people who had no money went to make movies you know they, they right. were the kind of movies made by small studios with a dream and sometimes mm -hmm. they crashed and burned and sometimes they they soared and did amazingly well uh but obviously everyone remembers plan nine from outer space uh which mm -hmm. is probably the biggest uh crash and burn yeah. in memory yeah uh, but but at the same time a lot of people see that movie and movies like it with a great deal of affection well, yeah, uh, I mean, no point right. do we tear that genre apart. Well, yeah, that's that that's where you know cult movies came from, like movies that, mm. that we clearly know are not good, but they're also kind of great. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's right. it's because everybody you know loves kind of making fun of them and poking at them. I mean, I've I am a, a big fan of riff tracks. I don't know if either of you do do riff tracks at all. Oh, yeah. um, but part of why I mm -hmm. like it is because with Rift Tracks, they're able to do movies that they weren't able to do before. So they can do big blockbuster movies because they're not actually showing mm -hmm. the movie, usually. Um, they do for Rift Tracks Live. But for Rift Tracks at home, you can just download it and listen to it while you're watching the movie. Um, so, like, like, one of my favorite movies to show people with Rift Tracks is Battlefield Earth, which is. Oh, really? <laughs> which has my favorite Rift Tracks, I think, of all time. Like, I. I've never been able to get through that movie without it. I tried to watch it with an X once, and I got like 20 minutes in, and I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, but watching it with Rift Tracks is delightful. Uh, same with The uh, Room. I I went and saw The Room oh, at, yeah. at, at Rift Tracks Live, um, and it was amazing. Like, it was so good, because everything was commented on. Um, but, like, that's, that's one thing about some of these movies. It's just, like... A lot of the ones that MST3K always covered were the ones that like you couldn't get any joy out of without someone else commenting on it, whether it's yourself and your friends or whether it's you know the the MST3K team. Um, hmm. Yeah. Gonna, speaking of, of riff tracks, yeah. um, I'm gonna say something that's probably gonna alienate some of our audience. Oh no. Um, yeah. Uh, when I was uh, working on the World Darkness MMO, the time period was like around 2009, 2010, where Twilight was still really big. Um, and so one of the things that I was told as a content creator was like, you know, you need to, we're not doing Twilight, but she at least understands what Twilight's doing. So we know what we're up against and what we're either pulling away from or, or bouncing off of. Yeah. Right? Um, and so my task is like, when you have to go watch the Twilight movies and I, I just, I could not do it. I couldn't. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, David, uh, my roommate, uh, we were in a, on vacation and he downloaded the riff tracks for Twilight and oh my God. God, it is amazing. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen um, that one, yeah. Because, because um, the main actor keeps doing these dramatic pauses, like, for no good reason. And, and the running gag for Rich Traps, so I was like, line, line. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I, I, I'm going to assume poor direction, because I've seen both those actors in several things since then, and they've been very good, so. Right, no, I, I absolutely believe it is poor direction. Um, sorry, I am I am a bit of a Twilight apologist, so I'm also going to alienate people uh, because okay. I still contend and will always contend that the only reason it became so you know the the thing to hate on is because girls liked it. I think that is absolutely it is fair. The, it is the first vampire media I know of that had a mostly female fan base, and so that is you know just the nature of things like like oh it's a girl thing we have to hate it um but like there are very attractive vampires uh in interview with a vampire and there's romance in a lot of those and i i don't understand what the difference is personally and i'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm gonna sorry sorry oh god oh god <laughs> i was just saying, i was just saying, I was going to finish my thought. It's like, I, I think to build up for saying is that I think that's actually very, very valid in the sense that I think the reason why at least the movies didn't work for me is because I don't think the directors got what made those novels attractive to women and to girls. Yeah. But I mean, I also don't hate the movies. I think they're fine. Fair enough. Like they're, Fair are, enough. are they great? 
Have I watched them multiple times? No. But like, sure. do they adapt the books in a visual manner that's pretty true to the books? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't hate them. Well, I, I obviously compare notes to like say the, the Harry Potter films, which is kind of a similar thing. It's another YA property that I think was adapted much better for film. Right, Harry Potter, the main character is a boy. And it's that's, widely that's, enjoyed okay. by both by by all genders. You know what? That's 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 fair. No, no, honestly, no, genuinely, I think it's actually a fair point. I had we genuinely thought of. Yeah, so. no, there's. I a, remember on this uh, deep dive into V five that I'm now doing uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> I made the I made the argument when I was working on the V five core that we really needed to study Twilight uh, because if Vampire the Masquerade could earn as many fans as the Twilight Saga has, mm-hmm. then we've done something right. And that doesn't mean that uh, 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 vampires have got a sparkle, uh, 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 or anything like that. But if you can tap in to what made those series so, or those books and those movies so popular and present that in a role-playing game along with what you've currently got, then, you know, uh, excellent. You, you've opened up a whole new market and you're pleasing an even wider demographic of people. Yeah. But and like, uh, I guess we'll have to see what the Finn Bloods become. <laughs> and I mean, like, to be fair, they're they're not, you know, my favorite books of all time. I've, I've read them once. I've seen the movies sure, once. Sure. But, like, I don't know. I just I just don't hate on them as, as much. I mean, they are, like... Hunger Games has a female protagonist and a romance and stuff. I don't understand kind of why one got really big and the other one didn't, aside from the fact that the actors didn't have a lot of chemistry in the movie. Like, Robert Pattinson clearly right. hates the experience of being in Twilight movies, and I I yep. feel bad for him for that. You know, I kind of hate that he, he did, did, did right. these four movies, and now he goes on talk shows, and it's like, now they fucking suck. Because even that kind of takes, you know, it's kind of a dig on, like, anyone that likes them. Like, oh, people paid tons of money on merchandise and seeing these movies and whatever, and a lot of people had a crush on you and this, that, and the other, and now you're going to walk around and tell those people they were wrong? That's rude. <laughs> right. Rude. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a fine actor. Kristen Stewart's a fine actor. Properties that are romantic <laughs> and aimed towards teenage girls are generally laughed at. That's my point. No, I think... <laughs> No, I think it's, I think it's all it's all very valid. It, Absolutely. I read an article to that a while back, and I will try to find it and put it in the show notes if I can, because it's actually a really interesting breakdown. Anyway, back to the came from Neat to see. Sorry that we got completely <laughs> derailed on rift tracks and Twilight and stuff there. Um, That's all right. But yeah, so now that we've talked about kind of the, the meta and the fiction and the setting um, and kind of where we've tweaked the setting a bit to make it more modern, because uh, clearly we're not going to, you know have a book where it's like, also, segregation is an effect. Because that's weird. Unless that's what your game's actually about. Like, if your game's about Mm. that, that's one thing. I I always look to, like, Harlem Unbound for for, for that kind of thing. If if your game literally has that as a main theme, great. If it doesn't, there's no need to include it. Um... So what is actual play like? I know that you've, you've got a few videos on this, a few actual plays, as it were. And we can link to a couple of those uh, in the show notes as well. But... Did did playing it at the table kind of end up the way you wanted it to or you envisioned it originally? Or did it take on a life of its own when you started running it? Like, what are some mechanics that you're super proud of that, that, that you enjoy, etc.? Well, when I started running it and it was all deadly serious, the, the problems well, yeah. became immediately apparent. And as soon as humor started getting added, everything else kind of fell into place. I mean, initially, I was using my own system, a system of my own devising to play test just to see whether the the genre stuck. And it did. Uh, I was then, again, in discussion with, uh, with Rich and I think with Rose, maybe, at the time, uh, to talk about which system we should use for they came from yeah, beneath probably. the sea and uh in the end we went for story path because i was sent the initial story path breakdown back when it was called something sardonic yeah. yeah yeah and uh i realized oh wow this does everything i need so there's no need to create another system this genuinely does everything i need out of a system and i will just bolt a couple of bits onto the side and make it they came from beneath the sea right. so immediately playtest started using uh the story path system and that's what the writers started using now some of the ways the system developed was uh, quips, for instance, were always going to be in the game and they were always going to be on cards because in my 
I guess, history of running role-playing games, I find that players, most players, interact favorably with props. People mm. like uh, people like having things they can handle if they're playing it in person, and they like being able to slam things down on the table. It creates a more interactive experience, especially if you're playing a game with a more light-hearted genre. If it's a more moody piece, perhaps not, uh, but when you're all almost, it's almost like playing poker around the table, you know, and you're all throwing your things into the middle, uh, whether it's momentum or rewrites in They Came From Beneath the Sea or Quip Cards, that was the way it went. Mm. Now, the uh, way that evolved was initially cinematics, which were the meta powers you mentioned earlier, like missing scenes, uh, being able to bust through a cheap set to escape an enemy, uh, summon the stuntman, as you pointed out, uh, and my favorite one, Kill the Extra. I love Kill the Extra. Which, <laughs> yeah, I, in every single game I've ever run at a convention, someone has used Kill the Extra to avoid even negligible harm. That's because it's you know, hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing is, if there isn't an extra on set in play at the time, they have to be introduced just so they can die. Right. And I think that's why people <laughs> love it. Uh, with the caveat that the character whose life was saved by the extra has to hold their body, cradle their head, and shout, No! no! Or, or come up with their name, <laughs> swear revenge, or justice, or the like. We had only just begun! Like... Yes, or one day from retirement! <laughs> that kind of thing. Um but cinematics just weren't being used, which is odd because now, now that I play They Came From Beneath the Sea pretty regularly at conventions, cinematics are probably used more than quips. And the reason was cinematics were added to character sheets or they were just referred to, they were on a list. As soon as you started putting them on cards of a different color to quips, people were going for them all the time. Yeah. You just had your rewrite pool in the middle of the table. You put your cinematics around that pool in a nice circle, and they could immediately see the connection between if I spend rewrites, so you get rewrites whenever you fail, basically, like momentum if you're familiar with the story path system. If you spend rewrites on cinematics, there they are. You can see them right in front of you. You can consult with the group, or you can be selfish and do it off your own back. And just like that, the cinematic is gone and you have used it at the cost of however many rewrites. All of a sudden, people were reaching across the table all the time. They're being active, they're being dynamic, and it really upped the the scale of play. People just loved doing that. Right. Um, and as the game became a little more meta, more and more meta, things like uh, the, the granularity of injuries and uh, injuries being on aliens and so on started falling away. Things started becoming a little more narrative. We still have that. We still have uh, some very narrative injury levels that, in fact, Eddie can talk about because he wrote them uh, mm -hmm. for characters. But for monsters now, they just have a static number that can go up or down depending on the, the, the director's whim. But what can you yeah, tell us about injuries, Eddie? Oh, I was going to say that the system as a whole actually was kind of an interesting discussion. Uh, injuries in particular, I remember talking with Matthew about because I was like, um, I, got, I, I saw two paths towards how we could do it. One of which was that injuries are just completely pointless um, because no one in a movie is significantly injured in any meaningful way in this genre. Right. Um, they always slap a little red paint on their forehead and they move on. You know, that's pretty much how it works. Or they wear a, a, a bandage around their 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 hands. You know, they're, they're very cosmetic. But on the other hand, um, I could see from a, a gameplay perspective, there needed to be at least some terror to the game. It is, a, it is at its heart, it's a funny game, but the characters are horrified. Um, and there needed to be some actual, you know, uh, danger in the game. Um, so I remember Matthew talked about it, and we ultimately decided to settle on basically kind of what was more or less core story path in the sense of, um, when you get an injury, it's just kind of another condition that's on your character. So it's like I have a bad leg. Um, I have, you know, I'm, I'm woozy from a concussion. Um, and so making it more like things that actually just impact your character. And it's the only kind of injuries we really talk about. Everything else is just kind of relegated to the background. Um, and that did kind of reflect the, the, the moment. And also because they're so easily removed. Right. 
Um, it's a case of where you catch them in their scene, it's like, oh, well, you're just you're healed again. And uh, um, as part of that sort of health track, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. characters get more and more potent as they get closer and closer to death. Right, because yes. that that was the big inversion from standard story path, or indeed most games. Right, that right. Uh, if you start off with a heroic scar, congratulations, you're going to gain additional dice to using your archetype uh, pool, for instance. If you then go into having a uh, dragging your leg behind you, you are going to end up with an additional die to your origin pool, and so on, until you finally get to your death scene. Or your your final act, you get one action, and then you get to role play your death scene. Right. No. Yeah. That's right. I remember this question because that's the only thing we talked about was like characters do get more competent throughout the movie. Mm. Um, and, and you're right. We did talk about that because I remember now that conversation of like, you know, can we track that to to injuries? And also, um, we have a lot of um, in uh, it's actually interesting because like in core story path, it's really actually hard to kill someone. You just get taken yeah. out. You know, basically, you're just narratively no longer seen. But you can actually die in this game. So in that weird respect, this game's actually more lethal in a respect. But like you say, um, we inverted the death spiral. So now it becomes a death spike in the sense that you, know, you, you <laughs> it's, 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 it's harder and harder to kill you at the more injured you get. But if they do actually manage to do it, you go out in one blaze of glory. And then Which I mean, it's a very because- thing. It's like, you know, you like gather your last bit of strength to stand up from your deathbed and bonk someone over the head with a baseball bat, you know? Yeah, or, yep, exactly. or you lunge forward to push the big red button yeah. that sets off the nuke and blows up the alien submarine, just as you know all of your companions have escaped through the, the hatch. Yeah. Um, right. so, so, yeah, I think... That's... And then someone cradles your body and goes, no! <laughs> your, your incinerated body. They cradle your ashes. <laughs> right. But 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 do they find exactly. your ashes? Well, it comes back, and they came from beyond the fallout zone. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> and that was actually something I know just overall in the system, uh, Matthew talked about because um, this was at the time where Trinity and uh, Sion were still be still had been pretty much developed, but there was some tinkering going on. Um, and I remember uh, we had a lot of discussions about okay, how can we get this to reflect what's actually happening on the screen. And there was a lot of changes, like little things like changing the momentum to rewrites just to kind of give it a more explicitly meta narrative of you're actually negotiating with the writers to get your scene to be better. Um, but also things like scale just worked. It was more just explaining how scale worked. Like like I, I told Matthew, it was like it was, I was giddy when I found out that you can do Godzilla with the scale rules very easily. It's like, bullets don't work, bullets bounce off it. Well, it's just because three scale differences doesn't do damage. Yeah. And it was nice to be able to actually go, oh, hey, the system just kind of works for what we're trying yeah. to do here. So would you say, since you've, you've, you've run it quite a lot, Matthew, do you think it's a better game for like a series of one shots because of just the nature of a B-movie? Or do you think it's a, a game you could play an ongoing campaign with easily? Or both? Uh, so I've, I've seen both. I've ran both. Uh, but I, I prefer it for one-shots because I think it makes players act with more uh, recklessness. Right. And this is a game that, that rewards a certain level of reckless behavior. Uh, and... And I think people just like that idea of sitting down to a table at a convention, playing the game, and walking away laughing because not a lot right. of games do that, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but I ran They Came From Beneath the Sea long form for the Red Moon role-playing team. Shout out to those guys. And mm-hmm. I made their game distinctly more horrific than comedic. There still were elements of comedy, but it was almost more Lovecrafty, and I know that's a very easy word to throw around, but it was still Aliens from the Deep, but it was a sort of subtle, creeping, pernicious horror that was overtaking a community, and their characters were the only ones who were able to do anything about it, it seemed. Now, that was played over something like five or six sessions, and it worked perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters that characters were gaining their experience, they were getting more and more potent, and they were still using their quips and cinematics. Uh, theirs is an actual play I would very much recommend anyone interested in uh, listening to such things finds, because it shows how not only they came from beneath the sea can be run in a uh, campaign mode, but also with a more serious tone with very minimal adjustments to the actual uh, to the game system uh, i think 
one of the things we did was so you you've mentioned Dixie the, that meta style uh, quite a lot yeah. and in that Cthulhu uh, version oh yeah you told me that's so cool yeah the the players are actually great old ones and the characters oh. are unknowingly chosen vessels of the great old ones they don't know oh, it wow. but the quips of at least one of their quips is going to be something alien and Lovecraftian. So that becomes a meta power, and that will trigger a change to the world around them, the the setting, essentially, that if the player decides to use it and the character suddenly freezes in place and starts going, yeah, yeah, Cthulhu of Time, or something like that, something will happen. And they increasingly become aware in a Truman Show kind of a way that they aren't in control of the narrative anymore, but they have no idea why why they are suddenly able to push through this brick wall as if it is paper, or why um, this person just rolls up to take the hit for them. It's because a great old one is pushing the sacrificial victim in the way to pre- prevent their chosen one from being injured. <laughs> That's great. Uh, that's really cool, and and so it became this really suspense-filled, well, game of uh, paranoia in a way, but obviously not without the uh, ultraviolet code. Um, so yeah, I it is a game with a lot of flexibility, and I think that shows with they came from beyond the grave, which is of course being worked on right now. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, a system with a lot of flexibility, and uh, as many genres as there are theoretically one could uh make that many they came from games it's true and they, i mean it's something i know uh, uh we, we talked about with with uh beyond the grave is that um beneath the sea is is explicitly campy i mean it, it's the the humor is is pretty baked into the game as a whole yeah um like you said you can play it seriously but really you're just like you just said reframing those existing things whereas uh, be, uh, Beyond the Grave is a little more the character. It, it's just everything's heightened. Everything's just kind of over the top. So it's still serious. It's just so serious it becomes right. funny. Yeah, I compare it to it's Ham versus Camp. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Beneath the Sea definitely has that air of comedy that you can't escape, and it's not comedy in the sense that everyone's tripping over themselves and going whoops, yeah, and there's not, a it's, laugh it's track. It's not slapstick. No. Right. Uh, it's it's comedy in the sense that the players are constantly laughing at what's happening to the characters, or quite often because it's just ludicrous. Uh, mm-hmm. But in Beyond the Grave, every uh, I, I think that word you used, Eddie, heightened, is a good one because mm-hmm. every the the characters are acutely aware of the wrongness of the situation they are in, and so they're going to make heroic declarations, damning declarations. I can't remember how many of your quips have got the devil. The devil himself. Yeah, something like (laughs) 25 or 50. Uh, A lot of those movies talk about the devil. Just so many of them. I will will scare the devil from you. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it will be interesting if we do another They Came From After Beyond the Grave, uh, what what sort of humor or tone that will tap into. I guess we will have to see. Yeah, because like really most B-movies that get MST3K'd or what have you are horror or sci-fi. That's just what they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from doing, you know, sci-fi from other planets, I mean, Beneath the Sea is already sci-fi. So it's like, it would just right. be more, you know, it'd just be like a slightly different tone to Beneath the Sea. So past past that, right. yeah, it, it really will be about finding the uh, the humor in it. Just because most, yeah, most, most B-movies are of those genres. Which is kind of weird when you think about yeah. it. There are plenty of bad movies made in other genres. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure why the why B movies were so often sci-fi, uh, because it doesn't feel to me like a sci-fi movie would be cheaper to make than, let's say, a noir set in a series of offices and a bar. But it, it, there just aren't that many well-known bad noir movies. Maybe they just don't make as much money. Well, I think it's also the fact that. Um, 
because the special effects are usually so shoddy and bad in sci-fi B-movies, they get a certain amount of, of, of humor just from watching yeah. it. Mm. So it's the, I, I mean, even if everything else is abysmal, I can get some inadvertent humor from the set design itself or from the concepts being spouted by the characters because again, it's ludicrous. Whereas a character, like, because there are bad noirs. I've actually seen a few of them and it's just, Un, they're just not memorable. It's like, okay, it's just yet more people talking in rooms again for an hour and a half. Occasionally someone shoots each other. And that's Which is why the movie it. The Room is um, such so- an accomplishment. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's on The Room? Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's got a few different places that it, that it takes place, but it really is a, a, a series of rooms and rooftops and very mundane areas. Um, and it mm. still manages to be memorably terrible. And the alley mm-hmm. where they play catch. Yeah, yeah, where you just stand with two of your friends having a conversation about your love life and throwing a football around because that's that's, that's, <laughs> that's that's what dudes do, right? <laughs> yeah. If Tommy was always any uh, inspiration, I mean, I think I saw y'all doing that at, at Midwinter. There was just a time when I I came outside and Matthew and Eddie and Rich were just stood there just tossing a football. And... Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talking yeah, about how uh, Eddie's getting in with that drug dealer on the rooftop again, who yep. we uh, took off downstairs, but you never see in the movie again. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> but they do keep his gun. It's true. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to uh, mention something from Midwinter, uh, and it's going to be, I'm going to tell you about my character. And uh, actually, it's a character that, uh, Ian Muller of Gehenna Gaming. Hello, Ian, if you're listening. Muller. Uh, Muller, Cause I, sorry. Cause I uh, was. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, was playing in the second session of They Came From that I was running. And it, I was. They Came From is a fun game for me to run because I will often run the same game twice. And of course, it will go in two completely different directions every single time. Mm-hmm occasion and in each game there was a sergeant joe thompson survivor character who was a uh, who was just a veteran yeah and in the first game we uh, we played he this guy was just a grizzled vet from the second world war whose family were killed during the second world war but he wasn't so he lived in a cabin out in the woods constantly thinking that he should have been the one that died and i think secretly they probably thought the same thing but when Ian came to play that character in the second session, uh, he was a veteran of two wars. He yeah. had uh, fought in the First World War and the Second World War. And uh, and his Second World War began and ended on Normandy Beach, where he, uh, he was presumably injured. So at first, all we knew about the character, this was something that developed over the course of the three or four hours that we played. At first, we just knew he was a veteran of two wars. Then about 30 Mm. minutes in, we know that he saw Normandy. You know, he's seen men die or he's seen people come out of the water before. And okay, so that's where we established. And then I think someone asked him, how long did you serve? And he said something like, four years. And of course, being an American, he wouldn't have served in the Second World War for that long. And so we ascertained that he'd been on Normandy Beach from 1944 to 1948. And and the the rest of his squad had abandoned him. Either intentionally or not, probably intentionally because he was a miserable bastard, <laughs> and that he became convinced that he was at war with the French. <laughs> so, so during the course of the game, he was constantly having flashbacks to the French and thinking that the aliens were speaking French, and um, he was toting around this shotgun that he had, that was his sort of prized relic from the Second World War. That was basically a shotgun he had stolen from a French farmer that he murdered. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just it, it was <laughs> yeah. He he was a terrible, terrible human being. This character, but it was so ludicrous and so fun and every one of the characters was just having these layers of nonsense added to them <laughs> as the game went on at the point yeah where uh, by the end you just wanted them all dead <laughs> <laughs> you thought let's let the aliens win um but he, he his was a good example of the kind of thing you can do with a character and they came from beneath so you can start with a pretty rough stereotype of who you're playing and the genre of 
B-movie, if not sci-fi, horror, Cold War, 1950s, whatever, the genre of B-movie can, I guess, influence and inform how you develop that character during the course of the plot. Because when you watch one of these movies, you know nothing about the character beyond what's being presented to you on the screen. You don't get Mm. to read the director's notes on, well, um, Joe Thompson's background sees him serving in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the Republicans or anything like that. Uh, All you know is that this guy lives out in a cabin in the woods and has no friends and cradles a shotgun all the time. So you get to fill in the blanks during the course of play rather than having to build an extensive backstory, which I think is something a lot of people enjoy, and they certainly did at Midwinter. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that, you know, if if you're into that kind of improv aspect of it, there was a, a LARP I played at Midwinter that Danielle Lazan ran that was the Dimension Hoppers LARP. And it was the same kind of thing where, mm-hmm. as, as we're talking about our various dimensions, you're just building on it. And there was a series of questions that was things like, you know, what's what's your national anthem in your dimension or how many states are there or what is the most popular kind of music in your dimension and uh just Mm. building on that stuff was very fun and it it, it made every there were five dimensions total and by the end of it they were all completely unique even though we were playing the same people from those dimensions so like there were five versions of my character but my version was very different from say neil's version so yeah and that is what made it super fun so I think that doing that and they came from would also be super fun. I have not gotten to play it, but I'd like to at some point because uh, I love a B movie and uh, I love a, a just ridiculous one shot play sessions are, are more my speed than super, super long campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do enjoy watching other people play and run uh, now because, as you pointed out, I, I've ran it a lot and... It was important to me when playtesting that other people run it and I play. Uh, Because when you've spent a lot of time writing or developing a game, you can very much become blind to any of the problems it has because you know how it's supposed to work. So giving a manuscript to someone who's not seen it before and asking them to run it and see how they get on with it is always quite, a, I guess, a revelatory experience. And it's always been... Barring a few exceptions, they came from beneath the sea. Has been even more fun for me playing it under people who have never ran it before, because they always take their own stance with it. But the system itself and the genre itself just work together really well. And uh, yeah, it's it's just something new every single time. Awesome. Well, we're getting close to time. Before we go, is there anything that we didn't cover about They Came From that you would like to cover? Like whether it's character archetypes or a certain, you know, actual play you did, anything like that? Uh, so, well, you can actually find the movie trailer for They Came From Beneath the Sea. I'm, yes. I'm putting a lot of links uh, on you right it's now, okay. Dixie, that you're going to have to put in the show notes. Uh, so there was a movie trailer made for They Came From Beneath the Sea by Larry Blymeyer. And uh, that was great fun to see that come in in time for the Kickstarter. And uh, I also did an actual play showing how the game was played for the Kickstarter, and that was really good for drawing attention to the to the game. And that's me in person with some of my uh, at-home group playing. So, yeah, do check that out. Um, otherwise, something that some people may be interested to know is this game should be fully, uh, I guess... Uh, crossover happy with uh, They Came From Beyond the Grave. Uh, Different eras aside, different genres aside, the archetypes are all different, but they all still have quips, they will all still have cinematics, stunts are still available, and all the monsters are uh, conversant with each other, if you like. And uh, that means that you can use information from this game for Beyond the Grave and Beyond the Grave in this game. So eventually, you never know, we might make a big movie uh, a movie stable of They Came From games where you could play the survivor, the mouth, and the scientist in Beyond the Grave just as easily as you could play the, uh, the professor or the hunter from Beyond the Grave in Beneath the Sea. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. I like crossover compatibility. And uh, I also mean, all all B-movies are good B-movies. And it would be really, really fun to play a game, too, where, like, 
you think it's Dracula, but actually it's aliens. You know, you can. <laughs> it's a crab man dressed as Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> to see a crab man with, with just like the cape with the jewel and the fa- like plastic like, fangs like, hanging like, off of it. I want to pinch your flesh. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, okay, cool. So that wraps us up. Uh, I will put all of those links in the show notes, I promise. Um, along with everything else we've mentioned. This is going to be a Link-heavy episode, I think. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. And hopefully I get to play sometime. I, uh, once I get my book, maybe I can run it. Who knows? Because I really, really want to play this game. It's super cool. fun to work on. Uh, so, with all that said, Matthew, where can people find you? They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com Just, just hanging out there. Just sitting there. Yeah, that's that's where I am. <laughs> yeah, fuck Twitter. And uh, this this episode's <laughs> gone pretty pretty well without swearing. God bless Twitter. <laughs> uh, no, I'm still on Twitter as Clack Click Bag. I'm still on Facebook as Matthew Dawkins. I'm still on our Onyx Path Forum and on various Discords. But yeah, check me out on MatthewDawkins.com. Eddie, uh, people can find me on Pugsday.com, and from there they can get access to all my super cool professional social media outlets. Yay! You can find me at DixieCochran.com, DixieCyanide on most social media. You can find us at TheOnyxPath.com, TheOnyxPath on most social media. And as always, many worlds, one pathcast. <laughs> <laughs>